easy, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Peer Help with Dr. G. We are here today live again from my house because we are social distancing. Welcome back to another great episode that we're going to have. We have a treat set up for you today. We're talking COVID-19, what we know right now. And obviously, we've been talking about COVID-19 for a long time. And those of you that have found me on social media and everything, you know I'm all about telling you the truth of where it is. And today is no exception. I'm so excited to present to you guys just a great program that we're going to have. I've got an amazing group of experts today that are going to help me really break this down. But this is really the issue of the hand. We know that COVID-19 is present. It is pervasive in our communities. As of now, your local hospital is likely teaching, is likely treating dozens of patients that are positive for COVID-19. And so it is in our communities. And so we're gonna talk about really the impact of what we're dealing with. A lot of us know what COVID-19 is, but we're gonna talk about really what's the impact and really where are we going with this? Some of the common questions I get asked quite frequently by my patients is, number one, when is this pandemic gonna end? And number two, what is next? What will the new normal look like? So we're gonna break that down and more. I have such an amazing guest today, and I'm so glad that you can spend your evening with us today. Again, my name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board certified internal medicine physician practicing out of Edward Hospital in Naperville, Illinois. I'm also a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Yes, hashtag lifestyle medicine. Gotta love it, gotta do it. But I'm so excited to have you guys back here. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. We're coming at you hard tonight, and I'm so excited to introduce you to my guests in a few moments. But here's the deal. Let me set the situation for us. Each week on this show, I'm all about telling you guys the truth. At the end of the day, I want you to get your health information from the trusted sources. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Those of you that have been following me along all this time know that we're all about setting the record straight. On Tier Health with Dr. G, we're all about building trust and delivering truth. So before we get into everything today I'm about this COVID-19 show again, we're going to make this interactive too. It's okay, go ahead and ask some questions. We may be able to get to some of them. I've got some prepared myself, but I want this to be very interactive for those of you at home. And the best thing that you could do after today is to like, share, and smash that subscribe button, of course. The more we get this message out to people, the more we're going to make a difference in the lives of those we care for. So again, before we get into everything tonight, I want to hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a, a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So here we are today talking about COVID. Uh, each week on the show, uh, I'm all about uh, really setting up a question and an answer kind of format, but when we do everything, uh, we really want this to be for you. And this show, even though we're going to be talking a lot of the, the, the science that's out there, but we want to really make it palatable for you. Again, the best thing that you could do is like and share and continue this conversation. This conversation is not going anywhere anytime soon. It is in our face. It's in our communities. It's in our magazines. And it's, it's in everywhere that you look at uh, COVID-19. But let's start talking about what are things going to look like moving forward? So what I want to do is I want to introduce my great guests to me, great guests today. They're joining me live via Zoom. You see them in the comfort of their homes. I'm going to welcome my guests into the show and everything. And I want them to say a few words of, of just hello and tell us a little bit about yourself. So I want to welcome my first guest. I've known him for a long time. Uh, he and I worked together at Edward Hospital. He sees a ton of my patients. I've known him for a long time. Friend, colleague, medical expert. I want to introduce you to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Pinsky. Let me read his credentials really quick. Dr. Jonathan Pinsky is a board-certified infectious disease specialist with Metro Infectious Disease 
consultants. Check him out there at www.midcusa.com. He's also the medical director of infection control at Edward Hospital. Dr. Pinsky, welcome to the show. Yes, nice to meet you. Uh, nice to meet everyone. Hey, good to see you. Yeah. yeah. Please, Dr. Pinsky, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you did your medical school, where you did your residency training, where you did your fellowship, and a few words about today's topic of COVID-19. Sure. I, uh, I graduated medical school back in 1996 at St. George's University, and then I attended uh, Loyola uh, in Maywood for uh, internal medicine. Um, that was three years. And um, then I did a subspecialty in infectious disease at Loyola. And I finished in 2001. And then after that, I came out to Edward Hospital uh, to practice as a, at a private infectious disease uh, practice. And I joined Metro Infectious Disease in 2012. And uh, since then, I've been the director, medical director of uh, the infection control department at Edward Hospital and also oversee the antibiotic stewardship uh, program. So essentially, my role is uh, seeing patients in the hospital who come in with a variety of infections who need antibiotics. Um, that's my clinical role. And then as infection control medical director, we kind of oversee the operations of tracking infections and um, basically keeping patients safe, keeping our staff safe from getting some of the infections that people come in with. Um, this now is, infection control is now kind of on steroids um, because, you know, what was before kind of a part-time deal for me has taken on an overtime role. So this is pretty much all I do now. Um, infection control is kind of dominating my, my time every, all the time now. Well, thank you, Dr. Pinsky, for joining us. I cannot wait to get more granular on some of this, this pertinent topic of COVID-19 and really pick your brain in a few moments. Uh, my next guest, I want to welcome her back to the show. She's been on t Earth with Dr. G a number of times. Uh, she and I first met uh, a number of years ago, actually, when I was uh, doing some work uh, and volunteering with the, uh, with the board over at Benedictine University in the Master's of Public Health Program. But I want to welcome back my longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Chang, let me read her credentials really quickly and I'll let her introduce herself. Dr. Susan Chang, PhD, MPH, she's Associate Professor and Department Chair at the Master of Public Health Program at Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois. You can check her out at www.ben.edu. Dr. Chang, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be on the show. I'm hey. really excited to be here tonight. I love it. I'm so glad to see you. And I'm so glad we're collaborating on such a, such a, obviously a very, we're at a pivotal time in, in history right now and such a, such a key topic. Uh, let, tell me about your background. Where did you do your, where did you get your um, education from, your, your degrees, and really a few opening words about today's topic at hand? Sure. Um, so I have an undergraduate in biology from Northwestern University. I'm actually from the Chicago area originally. And then I went out to California and have a master's and doctorate in San Diego um, from San Diego State and University of California, San Diego, both in epidemiology, um, which is the study of diseases. So there's never been a better time to be an epidemiologist. <laughs> For the first well, time in my career, I'm... everyone knows what an epidemiologist is. So. I'll leave it at well, that. this is wonderful. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, this is your time to shine. I'm so glad that you're joining me <laughs> no, here tonight. Yeah. For both of you guys, even infectious diseases doctors, it's like, uh, hey, this is your time. This is like uh, everything that you guys have, have fought for and, and uh, really uh, understand. Uh, it used to be dominated by cardiologists and orthopedic surgeons. They were big time. And now our hospital is now an infectious disease hospital. So <laughs> this is everything well, in I, our dreams. I so wonderful. Mention, I should mention, Mark, yeah. that 
Please, um, go prior ahead. to joining academia, so I joined Benedictine about six and a half years ago in the fall of 2013. But before that, I spent 12 years actually working on pandemic preparedness. So my previous yes. position before this was spending 12 years looking at how to combat the next 1918 flu or how to deal with H1N1. So during H1N1, I was one operating the emergency operations center for our um, CDC project in California. So um, unfortunately, you know, for those of us in that field, it was always a matter of when and not if. And, you know, unfortunately for us now, this is the time. So well, we're going to come back to me. Hey, you bet. I want to come back to that in a few moments. I want to uh, just uh, read a quick question, but uh, but I'm glad that you said that because this is the time. You know, we want to be prepared. You always say, you know, prepare for the prepare for the worst, hope for the best. And certainly, when we're talking about dealing with a pandemic, you know, you know, the, I think the saying is something like, everything you do before a pandemic hits may seem alarmist. But everything you do after a pandemic concludes seems inadequate. And I think that is like kind of the quintessential thing that you're talking about, because you've been around pandemics before. Actually, everybody else out there, you know, the last pandemic was the 2009 uh, flu, correct? Mm -hmm. So, so people, think, people, think, people think that the last pandemic was 100 years ago or so or things like that. But no, we've seen pandemics in our lifetime. And actually, currently, based on the statistics that were released today, we've actually uh, surpassed the number of deaths from COVID-19 compared to the entirety of the uh, 2009 uh, H1N1 pandemic. So let me ask you this, Dr. 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 Chang. Okay, go ahead, Dr. Oh, I was gonna say that, go ahead, that please. One, um, a lot of the elderly had immunity to it. So that one affected uh, the, younger, the younger people and uh, disproportionately, because it was a, very similar to another strain that occurred um, uh, decades ago. Excellent. So I want to get right this to the question. So when people come into our office, we call that the chief complaint. And really, we know we're social distancing like crazy. We're trying to shelter in place. But people ask these questions. So I'm going to have, I'm going to kick it out to you first, Dr. Pinsky, right to you. But people want to know this. And we're just going to start there because this is the hottest button issue. People want to know, when is this pandemic going to be over? And what are we going to expect next? Can you give us, can you kind of look into your futuristic crystal ball and, uh, and, uh, and give us your thoughts on that? Yeah. And then I'm going to have, after you're done with that one, I'm going to have Dr. Chang give us the same, her same thoughts on that. That's kind of the question, the hot button issue that's on people's minds. Right. So I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in epidemiology. Dr. Chang is, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a clinician, but I, you know, I, I listen, I listen to the experts, but um, I'm really concerned because this, this infection is, is quite virulent for, for a small portion of the population. And, you know, none of us have immunity, so we're all susceptible. So, um, you know, I am concerned that this will escalate and many more people will get infected. And it just all depends how good a job we do with the social distancing and how well we can um, kind of uh, not mingle with each other. Because we are all susceptible and we probably will all get infected at some point if we're exposed. Dr. Chang, Dr. Chang, what's your take on that? Well, if anyone tells you that you know exactly when this is over, I would also ask them for lottery numbers, right? I think that would be a very prescient kind of skill right now. Um, I think what a lot of people should understand, though, is that, you know, there's this meme going around social media about flattening the curve, right? Everyone knows the term flatten the curve, um, but not everyone understands what that means, right? So in order to see if the uh, curve is actually flattening, what we have to do is look at daily case counts. And when the number of cases each day doesn't increase anymore, and that trend stays consistent for several days, and then hopefully it starts to decrease, we know that we've passed the peak. Um, and unfortunately, until we get to that point, 
you know, there are models out there, there are estimations out there, but no one could say for sure exactly when that's going to happen. Um, it's why we're reporting cases every day. It's why, you know, the country is trying to ramp up testing as much as possible. But I think we're going to get over this whenever that peak hits and then we get beyond it. Um, my best guesstimate, based on everything I've read, looking at data out of Wuhan, looking at data out of Italy and Spain, South Korea, I would say, you know, in the United States, it's going to take us about three to five months, depending on how active shelter in place and social distancing has been working in particular geographic areas. You know, I think there isn't going to be one answer for the entire United States because we're so geographically diverse. Um, but I would say potentially if all social distancing and shelter in place methods work, and if we're able to maintain that, you know, there's hope that we would be beyond this in about one to three months, depending on if those big caveats um, pertain. You know, one of the challenges that I see a lot is really people adapting to some of the measures. I did a show last week, for those of you that are listening, or those of you that tuned in last week, I did a show about really the mental health and emotional health aspects and the tolls that it can take of doing social distancing. And certainly, uh, I've tried to look at this and trying to find a silver lining. As the forever optimist in me as a physician, I always want to talk about, can we make sure that we have silver lining? Because I feel like people need to have some hope. We, I mean, we see, we read about the cases, the death loads that are happening on a daily basis, but, and we know it's in our backyards and our community hostels are reporting these cases. But I always talk about how can we continue to keep hope when we keep seeing these numbers go up. So I want to ask Dr. Pinsky that question, like, you know, you're on the front lines, you're in the hospital, you're, you're in the intensive care unit, you know, how, how, how are we going to get through this? I mean, we're trying to throw as many measures, resources as possible, but, but really we're charting something that's somewhat novel. Obviously, the, the, the virus is novel itself, but even our treatment strategies are somewhat novel as, as the virus itself. So how do we kind of get past it? How do we really give people what they need to not be a statistic versus being a success story? Right, so the big concern is the hospital capacity. I mean, we can take care of mild cases. Um, for the most part, um, you know, there are a number of patients that get admitted to the hospital because they have lung injury, um, not severe enough to go to the ICU, but bad enough that they require some supplemental oxygen. And, you know, that can be life-saving. Um, you know, someone who is um, maybe saturating in the 80s, gets on oxygen, maybe okay, maybe only need a couple liters for uh, a few days or a week, and then they get over it, they can go home. Um, versus the other end of the spectrum, people with very severe illness that will require mechanical ventilation, and you know those patients have a very high uh, mortality. But the hospitals have to be able to have the capacity to care for all these patients. If too many people get sick all at once, then you know we won't be able to have enough ventilators, we won't be able to have enough oxygen, and then people just won't be able to get care. So, you know, I, I mean, am optimistic in the sense that when people do get sick, uh, we, if we are able to keep capacity, we should be able to take care of the majority, majority of folks. The other, the other piece that I'm optimistic about is research into antivirals and vaccines. Now, we don't know, they're currently looking at a vaccine, we don't know, obviously, if it's going to be effective or not. But, you know, that would, that would be a game changer if, if, if we get a vaccine. Um, in the meantime, you know, there's, there's research on antivirals. All the treatment we have now is just supportive. We don't have any anecdote for this. 
So there's talk, we'll get into this a little bit later about some drugs that are, may or may not work. But um, you know, what we're doing is treating the inflammatory effects of the infection. We're not even treating the infection itself. You know, if we have an antiviral that works, maybe we could prevent some of these severe infections. So um, I guess that's where my, my hope lies. Okay, wonderful. Dr. Chang, what about you from a, from a public health perspective, an epidemiology perspective? Uh, you know, where, where can people see some hope uh, in some of these numbers? Because again, we're, we're confronted with information on a daily basis, and we're not seeing numbers going in the direction that we want. But how can we find hope? How, where's the light at the end of the tunnel in this? Sure. Um, I actually think there's been a lot of really good news over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I try to find a lot of hope in um, both the coordinated kind of global scientific efforts that have gone into this, as well as kind of some of the um, characteristics of the virus itself, right? So we're very fortunate that the vast, vast majority, about 80% of cases or slightly more, are very mild and a lot of them can be treated at home or you know, potentially with supplemental oxygen. Um, another 25, 20 to 25% appear to be asymptomatic or you know, so mild that they don't even come to the attention of getting a test or getting um, to a doctor. So for the vast majority of those who do end up having the disease, most of them won't end up with long-term effects, right? They're not going to have long-term lung damage and the case fatality rate has been anywhere between one and a half to about two and a half percent, depending on numbers. So in that way, from an epidemiological standpoint, this is, this is not the worst case scenario, right? It's a highly infectious disease, but not a severely um, morbid or uh, high mortality disease. There's a lot of really good um, scientific advances that have happened over the last couple of weeks when it comes to testing and when it comes to equipment and when it comes to therapies. Um, you know, Abbott Labs right here in our own backyard in Chicago came up with a really good antibody test, um, and they're going to try to roll those out very quickly so that people can go to potentially a testing site or the doctor's office or the hospital, and we can get a better handle on everyone who already had it and maybe recovered. And so that's going to be a really huge part of that public health effort and trying to get a sense of, you know, where people fit, right? Have you had the disease and you've recovered? Do you have the disease currently? or have you never been exposed? Um, those are really important groups for us to be able to classify individual members of the um, community in. And then there's been really wonderful advances in trying to create new ventilators. You know, I think between ventilators and personal protective equipment, those are the two pieces that our frontline healthcare workers like Dr. Pinsky and like you, Dr. Gomez, um, it's so important to protect your health. And I think the ability of, you know, manufacturing arms um, and the ventures like Dyson or, you know, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, also in Illinois, um, their ability to create ventilators and to be able to roll these units out very quickly, that's going to be really huge in how we're able to respond. Um, and I think the last thing I wanted to mention is that we're also creating more temporary hospital bed space, right? That's really important too. Um, most of our hospitals kind of already operate near capacity. And so the ability to have, you know, someplace like McCormick Place created as a temporary hospital setting or even the parking lot outside of Edward Hospital being set up with tents. You know, I think for a lot of people, these are very scary images, right? This is, this is that kind of like psychological impact of, you know, what, what is this? This is unknown, this is different. Um, but the reality is this is actually part of a lot of pandemic plans. So everything's actually happening according to plan. And I'm hoping that that's reassuring that, you know, we always plan for this, we always exercise for this. And when you see 
things like temporary hospital beds or having, you know, the U.S. naval ships going into like California's coast or going into New York City's harbor, um, these are good things. This is all part of the overall plan that's always been in place. So I hope thank that's you. helpful. Yeah, no, thank you, Dr. Chang. I think that helps out a lot because I think, I think people need to know out there that your, your scientific community, your public health officials have your back. Um, and, and again, some people might say, oh, well, you guys are playing for the worst case scenario, but it's like you, you have to. The thing, as I, as I say, is you can't manage what you can't measure. And so, and, I, and I'll repeat that again for listeners out there, you can't manage what you can't measure. The reality is that we, we still need to figure out how to measure this and then we can better have an idea how to manage it. So I'm glad that all this innovation has come together. And so people should soon, hopefully, have some better access to some of those resources. You know, uh, one of the most common questions I get asked uh, every day is, can I get tested? Can I get tested? Can I get tested? And, you know, I keep writing, no, 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 no. But, you know, if somebody right now, we just don't have the testing capacity. And even when these new inventions come out, people want to know, is it in my backyard? And a lot of times right now, just everything that happens, they just know it's not in the backyard, but we're hoping that it's in the backyard very soon. Dr. Pinsky, what's your take on the access of testing? Because people want to ask all the time, can I get tested? And when are we going to see some of these newer innovations be readily available at the doctor's office to better manage something that we're trying to measure? Yeah, so this testing has evolved uh, over the last month. You know, one month ago, it was just done by the CDC and Illinois Department of Public Health. Um, you know, if we had a patient that came to the hospital, we would have to call the Illinois Department of we have to call our local health department and get permission for the test and the very strict criteria. And then I, around, you know, mid-March, we got our own testing in the hospital. And then this week, they're going to get rapid tests. So this is evolving. So, so there's more and more test capability, you know, and I, I would suspect that, that more and more people can get tested, the more tests that are out there. Got it. Dr. Chang, what's your take about the, you know, what you're seeing from a public health standpoint about the availability of this kind of testing? Uh, are you seeing that things are going to be readily available? Is it, is it, you think this whole process might take more weeks or months to get some of this kind of, to kind of level the playing field and make it equitable across the board? You know, I'm really hoping for weeks, right? I think it's going to be a really important tool in our arsenal to beat back this virus. Um, I think there are a lot of companies out there that are working with existing equipment so that hopefully we get to the point where running a COVID-19 test is as prevalent everywhere as running a strep test, right? You should be able to go to your doctor, they should be able to run a test on you and tell you very quickly, have you had this or not? Um, and I'd like to think given the massive, I would say unified effort of every scientific entity on the globe working on this one particular problem, you know, humans that are our best when we come together, right? This is our shot for the moon. This is our generations, you know, shooting for the moon and, I strongly believe that we will have something hopefully ubiquitously available everywhere within weeks and not months. Wonderful. Thanks for giving me that answer on that. I mean, I just, I feel both of you guys' sentiment is like, we, we want to do more as, as healthcare leaders. We want to do more for our communities. We choose to serve in our communities. And we want to make sure that our communities have those right resources. So let me get into a little section here that I've got. Everybody, you guys are joining us live here. I've got Dr. Susan Chang and Dr. Jonathan Pinsky. We're talking COVID update, uh, what we know right now. I want to get to some other kind of frequently asked questions that people ask, because I know people are out there asking this kind of stuff. So I'm going to ask this question for Dr. I'll kind of go back and forth a little bit, but here we go. We'll start with Dr. Pinsky. And, and this is a question that a lot of people ask. So here we go. Uh, should more of us wear face masks? face masks, either N95 versus surgical versus cloth or universal masking. What's your take on that? Okay, sure. I can talk about that. So this has also evolved. So 
Um, the N95 mask should only be used um, in the hospital and they're for specific procedures that we call aerosolized generating procedures. So COVID-19 um, is transmitted by droplet um, transmission. So little droplets when you cough or sneeze in the, in the air, um, they can go as far as six feet. A face mask is sufficient for that. Um, but if someone is doing an aerosolized generating procedure like in the hospital when they're intubating somebody or suctioning them, they will need an N95 mask. So the mask has two purposes. So in, in, like in the hospital, if we have a patient who has diagnosed with COVID, um, we would have them in a private room with door closed. When we go in the room, we would wear gowns, gloves, goggles, and a mask. And then we're wearing a mask so that the patient doesn't spread the droplets to us. Okay, the other purpose for a mask, there's a whole other reason for this, is in, in the public, um, there's a thought that um, there's a certain population that does not have symptoms that still may be contagious. So this is, um, and there's also people out there who, who do have symptoms um, that are obviously contagious. So the idea of universal masking is if everyone wears a mask, then those who are contagious, whether they know they have symptoms or don't know they have symptoms, that will prevent transmission. So now the CDC is recommending everyone to wear a mask in public if they cannot social distance. So if they are going to the grocery store and there's no way that I can prevent myself from being six feet apart from someone else in the grocery store, I'll wear a mask. And again, that mask is to prevent yourself from infecting someone else more so than that person infecting you. That's the, that's the purpose. Well, so, no, thanks for the clear. Uh, please go ahead. Yeah. And the one thing I want to say about masks, please. you know, in the hospital, we use a mask once in the room, we leave that room, we throw the mask out because it's a dirty mask. So if that patient's coughing or something, yeah. the, the droplets can get on the mask. So if you touch the mask, you can infect yourself. So if you walk around all day with a mask um, and you run into people who have infection, um, that mask isn't really protecting you because if you touch the mask, you can inoculate yourself. But that mask will protect you from infecting others. That's why they say that it's, it's not as protective for yourself. Excellent. So let me ask you this question, Dr. Chang. Here's a question. Uh, do I need to stock up on groceries and medication? Could we be locked down like in China? You know, even in China, they were not locked down in that sense, right? Um, even in China, they did have a head of household or someone designated in a household that would be allowed to go grocery shopping uh, for a certain period of time in the day. So the the idea that we would be locked in place, you know, let's use a blizzard situation, right? The idea that we would be locked in our homes without the ability to leave is incredibly unlikely. Um, I think what could happen if potentially the number of cases becomes more out of hand is that we might restrict how many people can leave the house and maybe what hours, right? So if we, you know, do it alphabetically by last name and a certain number are allowed to go to the grocery store in the morning versus the early afternoon versus the late afternoon, that's going to significantly decrease the number of people who are out and about. Um, but I think the, the um, motivation to hoard <laughs> or to stockpile is probably more born out of fear and anxiety than from any potential scenario where that would actually be necessary. Um, so, you know, prior to a snowstorm, absolutely. Maybe get another loaf of bread, right? Um, in this particular situation, I think it is not it's very unlikely, and I don't think it's very helpful. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Here's another question. I got this over Dr. Pinsky. Uh, here it is. If someone has recovered and has developed immunity, uh, can that person still be a carrier uh, and pass the virus on to a person who has yet to be infected? So I see that as a two-part question. The first question is, can you develop immunity after you're infected? So um, that's a common question. Um, it, it looks like, you know, the data out of China, um, there were people who were infected, recovered from the infection, but then later tested positive. However, they didn't have symptoms. So I would say if you've recovered, um, the data suggests you're likely protected from getting symptoms again. Second question is, could you still transmit it after you recover? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but based on what I've seen in, you know, the, the outbreaks that have been published in MMWR and so forth, I haven't seen that, that people have been transmitting that like weeks later after they get infection. You know, you can see transmission a few days before people get symptoms and while they're symptomatic. But I haven't seen that published where someone would transmit it weeks later. Excellent. Here we go. I got a question for you, Dr. Shang. Here's a question. In the absence of a current vaccine, are we... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Mark? He's not there. Hello, Mark. Oh, wait. Now you're on mute. Wait, you're on mute. This is us keeping oh, okay, it real. Sorry, right? I'm at. Can you hear me now? <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you guys can hold it. Tell me I'm gone. This is the, <laughs> this is the uh, lovely, and this is what happens when you have a lot of, uh, lot of devices on in your house. People out there <laughs> feeling us on this one. At the same time, you're trying to do the show, do the show but thank you. Uh, so here's a question, Dr. Cheng. Uh, in the absence of a vaccine, are we limiting ourselves from the possibility of mingling with others who have seen the virus and potentially have built up herd immunity? Are we limiting ourselves? So let me just make sure I understand yeah. this. Uh, is the question, should we have chicken pox parties, basically? Uh, that's exactly what the question is. Should, okay. we, be having COVID sure. should we be having COVID-19 parties with potentially people that, have, uh, that may have had herd immunity? Sure. So here's the thing, right? Um, and the caveat to all of my answers is going to be that the science is being uh, developed and researched and published every single day. So you know, whatever you hear from last week or today or a month ago, things are changing as the data comes available, right? So take that first of all. Um, but second, you know, here's the thing. Everyone, as Dr. Pinsky said, everyone has a possibility of getting this disease, right? None of us have immunity built in. Every single person on this planet has the capability of getting this disease. Having said that, none of us know until we get the disease how severe our symptoms are going to be. So, you know, while the vast majority initially of very serious cases and certainly deaths were among those who were older and with underlying health conditions. We now know that there are others who are younger, that people are dying in their 20s, people are dying in their 30s, people are dying in their 40s. Um, I think it's an incredibly dangerous game of Russian roulette to say that, you know, because I am 40 and young and I have no underlying health conditions that, you know, maybe I should preemptively get exposed um, get some immunity, and then carry on with my life, right? Um, I don't think any doctor or scientist out there is going to tell you for sure what your risk is. You know, I think there's certain categories and certain groups of individuals with certain underlying conditions or background characteristics that are at increased risk, but everyone's at risk of potentially getting it because none of us have that immunity, and none of us could know for sure until you get it just how mild or severe 
this disease course is going to be in you. So I think that is, um, that is a, you know, strategy that I would not advise. <laughs> Dr. Pitsky, please go ahead. Go ahead and comment. Because we always talk about, you know, heroism now in this stage and people talk about being all in this together. I mean, this is being very selfless to, to stay home um, because, you know, if, if you do get infected, you may have mild symptoms, but then you could pass it on to many other people and they could die. So you're, you're basically, to have a decision that you want to get infected and, and you're gambling that you're going to have a mild illness, you're also gambling at other people, you know, you're gambling with other people's lives. And we were, I was talking offline before the show about this uh, study that was published today in MMWR, where this one person, um, he went to two events, a funeral and a party, and that resulted in 16 symptomatic infections with three deaths. So you should think about that before you decide you want to um, just get over this and hope that it'll be a mild infection. Yeah, there was a case in, uh, I believe, and Susan, correct me if I'm wrong, but when uh, uh, there was a case in, I believe, in South Korea where a woman who had, was exhibiting symptoms, uh, she was patient, was known as patient 31, and patient 31 was exhibiting symptoms over and went to two large uh, faith-based services separated by a week apart, being around about 500 people. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Mark? He'll come back. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry so about that. I'm back again. I don't know why my back. PC's going back. Bear <laughs> with us, everybody out there. Technology is your friend or it could be your worst enemy. Uh, so I would say that there was patient 31 in South Korea who um, was ex- had symptoms, uh, went around 500 people on a, at, a, at a church service, and the next week another 500 people or something like that. And then literally a handful of days later, was it maybe you know, a week or so later, you know, the number of cases in South Korea were from 31 uh, confirmed cases to like you know, 2,000 or something like that. I'm not getting the numbers, don't quote me on the numbers, but isn't that the idea of the super spreader concept? It is. Um, you know, I think there are just so many variables that we're still trying to figure out, and some of them are very um, unique to the individual, right? So how much viral load did that person have? Under what conditions was it spread? You know, was it indoors? Was there any circulation, length of time? This all goes to dose response, right? So the more viral load that you are exposed to for a greater amount of time, the more likely you are to get the disease. And, you know, for something like a church service or a choir rehearsal, right, there was a choir group that also um, had kind of a super infection, uh, you know, a little cluster of cases. Um, The more time that you spend together being exposed, the greater the likelihood that more people will get um, exposed to it. So you can spread it, not just people think of coughing and sneezing, but you can spread it by talking and uh, singing. You know, that's a that's a pretty profound Mm -hmm. Uh, spread of droplets. Very, very much so. I remember that case entirely. Uh, so let me ask this question. I got another question that came in. Um, here's a question from one of our viewers. Uh, this is for Dr. Pinsky. How long does the virus stay in your system if you have it? So uh, it, for a long time, um, they, the, you know, they, the studies out of China, again, they, they demonstrated sometimes weeks later, um, people can still test positive. But yet still not have symptoms. But I have to say the people that have severe disease that we've seen in the hospital, they typically describe illnesses for a week or two. And then they're in the hospital sick for a couple of weeks. So we have these people that are symptomatic for well over a month. And, um, you know, the more severe 
case you have, the higher viral load you can have and the longer you can, um, the longer you're shedding virus. Wonderful. Dr. Dr. Chang, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, what's been in the media or what's certainly been in the news lately, we've seen some of the disparities on full display uh, in certain communities, certainly the African-American community as it relates to COVID-19. We know that this virus does not discriminate at all. You can see old, young, black, white, you name it. But you certainly see in the African-American community uh, certainly being adversely affected or disproportionately, I should say adversely, disproportionately affected when they may make up a smaller percentage of the population. Do we know why we're seeing those kind of disparities out there in relation to this virus? You know, I think the um, studies that have come out recently about that kind of the intersectionality of health disparities. And what I mean by that is the different types of um, background characteristics that increase um, the divide between being healthy and not being healthy, right? So, um, you know, something like race, we're definitely seeing among African American population and Hispanic population. Um, having lower income is certainly, you know, one of those characteristics that increases um, the negative outcomes. Um, something like education, geography, you know, gender, right? We're seeing that some cases um, men seem to be getting it slightly more than women. So I think when it comes to intersectional health, you know, what we're seeing coming, let's say out of Chicago, mostly because it's in our backyard, you know, 70% of COVID-19 deaths out of Chicago, 70%, let me say that again, no, 70, um, are African-American. 70%. Yes, yeah, 70% are African-American. And yet African-American individuals make up 23% of Cook County, right? I mean, that's dramatic. Um, so areas, you know, African-American individuals are dying at six times the rate of their uh, Caucasian, their white counterparts. Um, but, you know, we see this in other diseases too, right? So maternal mortality. A lot of African-American women are dying at significantly higher numbers than their Caucasian um, counterparts in the same geographic area. I think it has to do with two things. Um, one, that the African-American population in a lot of major cities already have a greater burden of disease, right? So a lot of the populations already have higher rates of asthma or diabetes or underlying conditions, and that puts them at greater risk of more serious COVID-19 um, prognosis, as well as you know, potentially dying from the disease. And I think second, it's a population that's always had lower access to healthcare, right? Whether that is lacking insurance, or not having the same kind of insurance, or lacking transportation, or finding a um, healthcare practitioner you know, that they can go to regularly and trust um, there are a lot, it's multifactorial, it's very complex, but I think in all the ways that African-American health has been impacted in general, I think COVID-19 just makes that worse. It exacerbates a situation that everyone in public health and medical care already knew existed. Yeah, when we uh, see that, uh, we, we, when we look at even like life expectancy in certain communities, uh, and what we call like the death gap, and, and certainly in Chicago, it's a wide range of people of color that are living less, living uh, living less long, or living less at the end of the day uh, than their Caucasian counterparts. And now this has only been exacerbated. We're seeing these kind of disparities. If anything, this disease is certainly bringing to light again some of the racial and socioeconomic inequities of health. And this is of us as healthcare uh, practitioners and public health officials and leaders, we want to have a level, level playing field. We want everybody to have equal access uh, to the highest standard of care possible. And, and so certainly right now, you know, the mayor today uh, basically said, all right, liquor stores are going to be closed at nine o'clock, but we're trying to find ways to reach communities that are most vulnerable. We have to do that. I want to ask Dr. Pinsky this question, and we'll get into some myths versus facts. Uh, here we go, Dr. Pinsky. 
Uh, we're getting a lot of questions, by the way, thrown in here. So I'm gonna ask you this one. Uh, this is a question uh, from a colleague of ours at the hospital, he will oh. name nameless, but here's the question. Uh, can you comment briefly on the meds being used for patients uh, in hospitals? So obviously right. we, we hear a lot about, um, uh, you know, uh, the biggest one that's being in the news right now, hydroxychloroquine, uh, some of these protocols, remdesivir, which is antiviral. I mean, are we, are we trying to use some of those agents right now as yeah. far as to treat some so of these cases? We're using these, but the evidence is very weak um, on these agents. So hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine um, are used for lupus. They're anti, both anti-inflammatory medications, and hydroxychloroquine also has an antiviral activity in vitro. So these drugs have been tried um, in some studies, um, and there was one that used hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin um, that seemed to show an improvement in symptoms. Uh, I've heard that there were some problems with the studies. They weren't peer reviewed. Um, they were poorly designed. So, you know, we don't really know if they work, um, but with the limited evidence we have, and these are drugs that are readily available to us, um, we, we can use them. Now the hydroxychloroquine is a lot, slightly scarce. We do have it in the hospital, but I think it is difficult to find on the outpatient setting. So we're using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for our patients that have that are hospitalized with mild to severe symptoms, or sorry, moderate to severe symptoms. Um, but we're cautious because we know these medications do have side effects. One of them is QT prolongation, um, and that puts somebody at risk for a cardiac arrhythmia. So you know we use them in the hospital, but th these people are on. EKG monitors, telemetry, so we can recognize if they do get QT prolongation. Um, but I would be concerned about using this on an outpatient setting where you can't monitor that. Um, so that's, that's hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. The other um, medication that we were using is toclusumab, which is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. So uh, since we don't have a drug that treats the virus, we're trying to treat the secondary inflammatory effects. Exactly. And there were some anecdotal reports in China where they used toclusumab to prevent this uh, inter, interleukin storm. I guess um, some places have, you can measure an IL-6 level, and if it's high, then you can use the drug. And so we're using this too, but unlike other diseases where we have a long track record of studies and things, we just really kind of in the dark. So we're doing the best we can. You know, most of this is really supportive care, oxygen, mechanical ventilation, IV fluids, until people kind of get better and are stable to go home. Right, thank so you. Hopefully thank we'll have studies. Oh, one more drug that people are yeah, gonna please, ask about, go ahead. Kaletra. So this is an antiviral drug that was used for HIV. Um, and, but there was a, a study published in New England Journal that showed, it was actually randomized and it was not effective. So we're not using that drug anymore. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Pinsky, for the update on treatment strategies. And again, this is an ongoing process. And again, I, th and I want to tell people out there, your, your frontline uh, um, 
medical doctors, your frontline researchers, we are all trying this collaborative effort to make differences and put a dent in the burden of this, of this disease. I want to get into a section that we do each week on TRF with Dr. G called Myths versus Facts. And I love doing this section because it's really about setting the record straight. We've been trying to set the record straight already, already this evening, even though my, my camera's gone out a couple of times, but that's all right, we're still with us. But I want to set the record straight on Myths versus Facts. So how it's going to work is I'm going to say a statement, and then my panelist is going to say myth or fact, and we're going to kind of go boom, 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 boom. So we're going to try to keep it short. I'm going to get through as many of these as we can. I've got some some questions that people have been asking online, and I want to try to add this to a myth versus fact too. So here we go, Dr. Chang. Here's the first statement for you: myth or fact? Okay. Uh, here's a statement: Until we know how many cases there have been, it is impossible to be certain of the death rate of COVID-19. Myth or fact? fact. Please explain. Well, so in theory, we know the top number, right? The case fatality rate is the number of people who die of COVID-19 on top, and the bottom of that fraction is all the people with COVID-19. Well, as everyone knows by now, we're not testing nearly as widely as we should, and tests are not as readily available. So that bottom number, the number of people with COVID-19, is not as accurate as we need it to be. And until we have a better handle on that bottom number, we're not going to have a very accurate case fatality rate. Wonderful, thank you. Here we go, Dr. Pinsky, here's a statement, myth or fact. Uh, here's a statement. It is not clear to what extent children help spread the virus, myth or fact. I would say that's true. Um, we, we don't know that the answer to that because um, children aren't tested and we don't, uh, we don't know. And there's this, all this talk about asymptomatic spread, which is an unknown area too. So yeah, that, that remains to be determined. Wonderful. Here we go. Hey, I'm going to participate. Here we go. I'll take this one. But you want to say one thing about that? Oh, yeah, please go ahead, Dr. Pinsky. Go ahead. Closing schools. So that was the that was a brilliant thing to close schools because we know children are like a cesspool of viruses. We know that because they they're huddled together. We know that influenza transmits very quickly in schools, and um, and and children just transmit viruses. So you know schools are closed now. So they're probably not a big component now. But um, during normal circumstances, children drive viral spread during during most normal times. Thank you, Dr. Pinsky. We, yeah, we definitely have to make sure that there's still social distancing because I've seen too many playdates still at the same time, which makes me want to shake my head. Here we go. I'll take this one. I got an easy one. I'll give myself the easy one. Here's a statement. Uh, soon I will be able to get testing to see if I'm currently infected with COVID-19, even if I do not exhibit any symptoms. So right now, uh, I'll say that the, I'll, I'll say maybe fact, but, um, but an asterisk next to it. We don't have universal testing right away, right now at this point. Ideally, yes, in a very utopian world, we would all know our status on this, on this virus, or whether or not we're susceptible or whether or not we had it. Uh, but the reality is we just don't have the testing capability right now. Uh, hopefully, as Dr. Chang said earlier in the program, that, that we may be weeks away from having more testing, maybe more, even more widespread. Again, you can't, measure, you can't manage what you can't measure. Here's a statement. Here we go, Dr. Chang. Here's a statement. Uh, there have been 1.2 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 as of April 5th. There's a lot more now. But as of April 5th, there have been 1.2 million confirmed cases. But this is only a fraction of the total number of infections. Myth or fact? Fact. Please I think explain. once again, because testing has not been widely available, that you know we're looking at the tip of the iceberg, right? We're looking at all those individuals who are either sick enough to ask their doctor uh, for a test or have actually gone to the hospital or we're doing contact tracing. It's all the people that they have told us that they have had contact with. I think there is a good swath of the population that had community contact that we will never know until we have antibody testing. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Chang. Here we go, Dr. Pinsky. Here's a statement. Uh, statement. There will be fewer cases of COVID-19 in the summer. Myth or fact? Do we know? I would say I don't know. That depends on the social distancing uh, 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 theory. So, um, yeah, we don't know. I mean, com compared to influenza, um, you know, influenza does spread more during winter because the virus uh, survives better in a cold environment and in a dry environment. But if you, if you have a population that's not immune, all bets are off. It's still going to spread fast. So I think it depends on how many people are infected. If, if still the majority of people are not infected, then it's still going to spread fast regardless of the season. All right, wonderful. Here we go. Here's the next thing. Thank you, Dr. Bensky. Dr. Chang, here we go. Do a couple more of these. Um, here's the statement. Social distancing and shelter-in-place measures will end by June. Myth or fact? Crystal ball, by the way. Crystal ball. Okay, so guys, here are the lottery numbers for today. <laughs> uh, you know, I think... Everyone's anxious, right? I think everyone wants to get back to normal, and I certainly understand that. I think with the shelter-in-place orders that several governors have put into place, you know, we're going to see that curve flatten, right? We're going to see the number of cases start to stabilize and hopefully very soon start to decrease. Um, as Dr. Pinsky said, you know, one of the primary goals of shelter-in-place is to make sure that the number of moderate to severe cases that need hospitalizations stay below the capacity of hospitals. Right, we wanna make sure that there's a hospital bed and there's medical personnel for everyone who needs it. After that, so I think, you know, not to get too excited, but after that, as we start seeing cases go down, you know, if we were then to lift shelter in place and we were then to reverse social distancing, it comes back, right? We still don't have built-in immunity. We don't have a vaccine. No one has seen this virus before. None of our immune systems have, you know, any idea what to do with this. Um, potentially except the people who've recovered, which isn't a big enough fraction of the United States yet. And I think the ability to lift social distancing and shelter in place before we get to the point where, you know, we're fairly certain the entire curve is basically, you know, gone and done would be incredibly foolish. I think we'd be asking for a second wave um, to come immediately behind that first wave. Got it. Thank you, Dr. Chang. We'll give you the last one. Here's the last one, Dr. Pinsky. Uh, here's a statement. We don't know why around 20% of people infected with COVID-19 go on to develop more severe disease. Myth or fact? Um, it's, well, we know, we know some, something about it. Um, you know, it's, this is ongoing research. Um, but we do know the risk factors for severe disease. Um, older age, comorbid medical problems. Um, but the strange things that we're seeing is that we see people who are in younger age groups, like in their 30s or 40s, having severe infections, um, even though the mortality is higher in the older age groups. But um, it, it looks like the, the reason has to do with that inter, the interleukin surge so it's the inflammatory response to the infection that kind of drives the severity. Wonderful, thank you, Dr. Pinsky. So there you guys have myth versus facts. And I will tell you this, uh, for everybody out there, I know you guys have a lot of questions. I'm gonna try to answer some of those 
offline, but but thank you for submitting all your questions. What would be mindful of everybody's time tonight? So we got about five minutes left. So we talked about the beginning. We call it the chief complaint when somebody comes in and really the question, the elephant in the room is where are we at right now with COVID-19 and what are we going to expect? Uh, when somebody leaves our offices, we call it the assessment and plan. And that's where we kind of give them a summary of what's going on and most importantly, a treatment plan. And then most importantly, even more important, their treatment plan, a follow-up. So let's bring in our home. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Chang. Give us a few take-home points of a, of a message that you want to really help make sure our listeners today understand about what we're dealing with right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Sure. Um, I think, you know, once again, to reiterate about that curve, that the shelter in place and the social distancing, all those guidelines will continue until we're fairly certain we're at the very end of the curve, not when we think we've peaked, right? I think it'll be weeks after that before some of those guidelines will lift. So if that helps people plan or wrap their minds around how long this might last, I think that's helpful. Um, I think what Dr. Pinsky said about wearing a mask, you know, we've gone from a kind of a defensive to a more of an offensive stance, right? The wearing of the mask isn't so much to protect you from every potential viral particle, it's to prevent you from spreading your potential viral particles to others. So I think, you know, anytime you leave the house, whether it's to go grocery shopping or to walk your dog around the neighborhood or, you know, go out and maybe, you know, grab something that you need um, from the hardware store, you know, please wear a mask, right? This is how we show good citizenship. This is how we show our community and our neighbors that we care about them. And I think the last thing um, to recognize is that, you know, like in everything else, we're self-monitoring now, right? So if you feel sick, you know, try to take care of your symptoms at home for as long as you can, um, however you can, but then to recognize when it's important to go to the hospital. I think anytime you have shortness of breath, you know, anytime your lips start turning blue and your fingertips starting, start turning blue, anytime you feel like, you know, this looks different and this looks more serious, that's the time to head off and get medical care. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Chang, for joining us today and really sharing your critical insight on this everything. So it's been my pleasure to have you back on my show. We definitely will be connected again. Dr. Pinsky, uh, give us a few take-home points today. Uh, give our people that are out there listening to our I wanna, show. I think my uh, video uh, cut out a little earlier. I didn't. I missed part of the early questions, but um, you were talking about clinical presentation. Just, just want to talk to people about you know what to do if they do have symptoms. So. You know, if you, if you have a common cold, cough, low-grade fever, you don't feel sick, you know, you could, you don't necessarily have to go into the emergency room. And, you know, there are, doctors do have something set up called telemedicine where you might kind of communicate your symptoms. Um, but we don't, what we don't want is for someone who really feels sick, has like generalized weakness or shortness of breath or dizziness, um, really high fevers, you, you should probably go get checked out because you could have a severe, severe symptoms. And I worry about this because, uh, you know, we've seen the coroner report, um, that's at home. Um, and, you know, I think that it's a good idea if you, if you do have some of these severe symptoms, talk to your doctor first and they can tell you whether a, a visit is warranted. What you can't do is go to your doctor's office because this is very dangerous. Doctor's offices aren't seeing sick patients anymore because it's just not safe for the medical staff. So you can go to the emergency room and they have everything set up for isolation. Um, and you know they can check your oxygen reading, they can do labs, see if you can go home or not. Um, we, they've even set up um, oxygen monitors. So if there's somebody that they're concerned about and they're not, their oxygen isn't low, but they want to follow them. They can send them home with a pulse 
oximeter and monitor oxygen. So these kind of things are life-saving. So, you know, I think it's really important to keep in touch with your doctor and just don't take the message, oh, I'm not supposed to go into the hospital. That's all Wonderful. I have to say. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Pinsky, for being on my show today, really sharing your expertise on things. I'll give you guys at home my final take-home points on today that we'll close it on out. Um, number one, Number one, like in a whole thing. Number one, social distancing works. Hashtag social distancing works. I want you guys to keep doing that. You know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that nobody else gets sick. The best thing that we can do is avoid getting ourselves into that situation in the first place. So social distancing never works. Number two, support your frontline medical workers and first responders. There are so many people out there, doctors, nurses, care technicians, first responders that are selflessly putting themselves in potential risk to care for our loved ones. Please support them as much as you can. And I certainly, from my end, on being on one side of the spectrum, certainly on your end, Dr. 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 Pinsky on the other side, you know, thank you. You know, you guys are in the hospitals really doing so many amazing things. So number two, again, support your frontline medical workers. And then number three, I want everybody just to maintain faith. Preparedness is appropriate. Panic is not. Maintain faith that this collaborative human spirit will bring this all together and we will get past this problem. We still have a time and we still are able to shape our own destiny when it comes to COVID-19. And I'll leave it at that. I want everybody to stay well and I want you guys to have a good night. I want to thank my guests. Let me read their credentials again. Uh, my great friends, Dr. Jonathan Pinsky, board certified infectious diseases specialist with Metro Infectious Disease Consultants. Check him out, www.midcusa.com. He's also medical director of infection control at Edward Hospital. Dr. Susan Chang, associate professor and department chair, master of public health at Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois. Check her out, www.ben.edu. You've been listening and watching live on Facebook. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2020 by MDG Wellness LLC. Stay tuned for my next show next week. Everybody's for the youth. It's for the fellas out there hashtag cancer sucks an update on testicular cancer thanks everybody and i want you guys to have a great night dr chang dr pinsky see you guys later everybody peace out